If you would, please turn with me to Deuteronomy. I'm going to be covering, Lord willing, chapter 13, verses 6 through 11. I'm going to be reading, starting in chapter 12, verse 29. And this is what the word of the Lord says. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods, that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. Yes, You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. Let's pray together. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds, in company with men who work iniquity, and let me not eat of their delicacies. Father, I, I pray that you would do that work in me as I seek to proclaim your word now, that I would say only what you would have me to say, and that I would be faithful to worship you through this, and that you would cause all of us to see your incomparable glory, that there is no true food or delicacy to be found in wickedness, but only in the bread of life. And so, Father, we pray, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Father, you sent your son, and he came incarnate 
that he might call us to repentance. And he has done that. He has rebuked us that we might have life and given us an anointing of the Spirit, that we might be made like him, made holy like him. So help us to not resist, but to submit in faith, knowing that you do good for your people in all things. So open our hearts and minds that we would behold your glory and your word, and that, Father, we would render worship unto you that you are due, sacrificing all that we are for your honor. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. It's been an interesting week. We've seen our government have the gall to take marriage, an institution given by God, an institution defined by God, and act as if they can take ownership of God's institution, as if they can redefine that institution, as if they were the ones who are sovereign. It is appalling, it is confounding, and God is taking account. Part of the question that is raised when we see such boastfulness is how did we arrive at this point as a culture? And certainly it's not because the Bible's changed. The Bible has stayed the same. The word of the Lord endures forever. Uh, I've talked about these dynamics before with Pastor Jeff, and he's offered some um, real insight on this because what he's pointed out is that what we've seen is churches and their message is what has changed. Not God's message, but the message of churches. We've seen churches get soft on human sexuality, on what marriage is, on holiness. And the question is why? Why did churches get soft on this all of a sudden? One of the, the answers that Pastor Jeff's laid out that I, I think is insightful and um, plays a significant role in all of this, this folly that we see, he's pointed out that a lot of pastor's kids have become homosexual. And all of a sudden, as the pastor's children becomes homosexual, the, the message starts to tailor to accommodate a comfortable sort of relating with that child. The Bible's not changing, but the pastor's commitments are being revealed as children change. And what we're seeing through that is what does that pastor ultimately love? Let, let, it, let me be clear here. As that message changes with the drifting of that pastor's child, that's not because the pastor loves the child. If the pastor loved the child, he would clearly speak truth to the child. Call them to repent that they would find life and true joy. He is drifting not because of the love of the child. He's certainly not drifting because he loves his church and thinks the message that he's changing with is going to be good for that church. And he's certainly not changing the message because he wants to love the Lord his God. It's ultimately a pursuit of selfishness, of comfort, of ease, a pursuit of the fear of man. And if pastors, so-called pastors, in our day and age have been so brazen, why not our politicians? We all need to be able to speak the truth in love to any person, no matter how close they are in relationship to us, and no matter what cost that might be in that relationship. And indeed, as we're going to see in Deuteronomy 13, there is no relationship 
that we have on this earth that is exempt from God's standard of speaking the truth in love. And what we have to believe is that God is worthy of such praise and worship that we would speak the truth in love even as it is difficult. And part of what we have to believe in addition to that is that God rewards those who put their faith in him. It is for the good of those we speak to that we tell them the gospel, even as it confronts their sins. That is how they will find life and blessing. And we have to, courage, we have, to have the courage to believe that. So the main point we're going to consider here in Deuteronomy chapter 13 is that God's people cannot make any provision for idolatry or sin. God's people cannot make any provision for idolatry or sin. We've been talking about and discussing over and over, uh, and there's multiple good theologians who argue this way, but I think that the book of Deuteronomy is structured around the ten words, the ten commandments that were laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 5. In chapter 6 through 13, as it starts with the Shema, the call to love the Lord your God, I believe that's a reflection of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So this section, chapter 6 through 13, are focused on loving God, on worshiping God, alone and no other gods. And in addition to who Israel is supposed to worship, it has, this section has been laying out how they are to worship God properly. They must worship God in the ways that he is prescribed in his word, because that is the only worship that is pleasing to him. We do not get to choose how God will be worshiped. God chooses how he will be worshiped. We've been seeing how in chapter 12, they're going to come into the land. God is going to establish his temple, his dwelling place with the people. They are to render their worship to him. Uh, in that place according to his way. And yet at the end of this, as they're coming into the land, God has given them a stark warning to not adopt the practices of the Canaanites that are going to be wiped out before them as they come into the land. That's a, that's a very logical warning, right? These people are being wiped out because of their sin. Very, very clear. Don't go that way. And what is happening now, where we're stepping into now, and what we talked about last week, they're not just not supposed to adopt the practices of the Canaanites, even if there's a real prophet that arises from among them, from within their people group, they're not to follow them either. They have to be careful. The threats are not just outside of Israel, they are within Israel. Even a seemingly true prophet can lead the people into idolatry if they're not careful. And now, if you I feel like last week's passage was hard, and it was just the appetizer for difficulty. Now the point is going to become, the threat of idolatry is from your most intimate familial relationships. This is what God says. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him. These verses, I think, are laying out for us in extended terms all of the closest relationships we can fathom. Your brother, the son of your mother, 
your son or your daughter, the wife you embrace, or your friend who is, is your own soul. Six different relationships there. And I think the point being, six seems to be representative of humanity. I think God's laying out, think about all your relationships within all of humanity. Now pick your favorite one. And if that person tempts you into idolatry, you would have nothing to do with it. They are not exempt. If they call you to worship a God that is other than the Lord your God, you may not follow. It could be an idol that is near. It could be an idol that is far. Israel's calling was to be a testimony to the nations, to the peoples around them of the glory of God, that those nations would come to Israel and become like God through the ministry that Israel is doing as a kingdom of priests. But what God's warning them about is their propensity to become like the nations rather than be like the Lord their God. And that that threat comes from within them, from within their people. Verse 8, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him. There's five prohibitions here as you count it. Five prohibitions. There's five books in the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And I think it's possible the implication here is you have to cling to the word and not yield to this person who's calling you to depart from the word. This seems to build off of the end of chapter 12. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. They are being tempted to depart from God's word, even from the person that they would otherwise be closest with. And as this temptation is presented to them, they are not to try to syncretize or meet this person in the middle or try to accommodate them somehow. No. They are not to have any pity on them. They are not to spare them. They are not to conceal them from the sentence that God is going to place on them. And that sentence that's going to be placed on them because of their idolatry is going to be death. And this dynamic of not pitying them is the same, that's that word for pity, the same word used back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, to talk about how when they come into the land, they are not to pity the Canaanites as God brings judgment on them. If your most beloved person in the world goes the way of the Canaanites, they are to be treated that way. The person who's as your own soul, the wife you embrace, this, your son or your daughter. Do you see the irony here? These idols that had been in Canaan were the sorts of idols where they would worship them and offer up their son or their daughter to them in sacrifice. If your child wants to go into that idolatry and be killed in the pursuit, that's what's going to happen. It's a terrifying prospect. They're going to get what they want, even as they want what is wrong. And part of what we're seeing here from the, the dynamic of the intimacy of the relationships and what we've been talking about where the temptation could be multiple things. It could be outright worshiping idols. We've also talked about, and I, when we read this as we were going through, the temptation is that you could worship the Lord your God, 
but in the ways that the pagans worship their gods. So sometimes it's not even just an outright frontal assault on the worship of God. Sometimes it's just skewing it. Let's just nudge you a little bit. Let's let's make love seem so inclusive that it doesn't matter whether you're in sin. That, that's the nature of deceit. It is simply enough to just skew one off course. You know this as you drive. You drive in your car, you get off a little bit, that's a lot of ruin, isn't it? And we have, like we talked about last week, we have to keep in mind that deceit is deceptive. The only way to discern deceit is to look at God's word. Not at man, not at the explanations given by man, but at the very word of God. And they are to be careful if they do not address the sin, the idolatry as it arises, it is going to spread. It will not stay contained. They are to purge the evil from their midst, lest they all end up in that same place of evil, in the same place of ruin. That is what has happened with the Canaanites. An entire people group wiped out because sin does not stay contained. Sin spreads. It is cancerous. And it is worse than cancerous because it sends people to hell. God is making it clear from this passage that he is testing them to see whether they really believe what he has said, that they are to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their strength. The Shema starts with, hear, O Israel. That's the same word for listen. This used in verse 8. You shall not yield to him or listen to him. You shall listen. You shall hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. No idols. You shall love the Lord your God. God is indeed in ordaining these tests to see if Israel loves the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their soul. Chapter 13, verse 3, like we just read earlier. He's, he's laying out that God has ordained situations to happen in the course of their life that reveal what is in their heart. Their practice will show what they really believe. Their pattern of life will show what they truly worship. For, for those of us who are reading this now, in the era of the new covenant that has been inaugurated in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we have to understand that we as the church, the assembly of God in the new covenant, we do not wield the sword like Old Testament Israel did. So when we look at how we apply this passage, it's going to be different. Paul gives us indicators about how we are to apply this passage because verse 5, that last phrase, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, that phrase is used as we were reading in 1 Corinthians 5, to talk about what the church is supposed to do when someone is in unrepentant sin. They are to purge the evil from their midst. They are to address the sin and remove that old leaven of sin from their midst, lest it spreads, because sin spreads. So Paul's using that that phrase that's coming here in that context, talking about the false prophet that arises. 
And so I think when we're looking at the dynamic here in chapter, chapter 13, verses 6 through 11, you're seeing that the same principle of pursuing purity in the church that Paul applies from chapter 13 extends and really starts with the home itself. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul tells the church at Corinth, uh, in 1 Corinthians 16, he tells the church at Corinth that the men are to act like men. They are to stand firm in the faith. That is how they are to love the ones under their care. And the, the instructions here, verse 8, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall you pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him. Most of those verbs are in the masculine singular. We are, as men, to protect the purity of our families and of those under our care. That is part of the leadership calling that God has given us. So where, where do we begin in that pursuit of purity within the home? Well, we have to start by defining sin the way God does. We look to the word. What that means is the standard of sin is not what's just displeasing to me. The standard of sin is not what's displeasing to you. The standard of sin is what has God said is displeasing to him. So when you wonder why someone didn't put something away, and you're upset. But then you come to find out that that person didn't put that away because they went and took care of someone who was hurt. You start to realize, oh boy, I'm not a good standard of what's right and wrong, am I? The standard of sin is laid forward in Scripture. We go to the Word. And as we go to the Word and we see how God defines sin, what should become quickly apparent is, even as a man who's a leading in the home, what should become readily apparent is our propensity to sin, our own insurmountable failure to meet this standard. And so what that means is if we're going to begin addressing sin in the home, the most obvious sinner we can see in the home is ourselves. So when we do sin, which we will, we need to show our family what it means to repent by repenting with them, going and seeking the Lord in prayer with them, asking God to forgive us with them, and then asking them to forgive us as well. And what happens as we do that is that we realize that God does give forgiveness. He saves sinners through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And from there, we are able to then address sin in the home and truly forgive those who sin us and call as your, especially if you have multiple little ones, as they sin against one another, you call them to repent and forgive one another in light of that gospel, depending on what translation you're looking at, it, we are to forgive in that pattern 70 times 7. And I don't think that means you get your clicker out waiting for 491. It means forgiveness is to be complete every single time. That relational debt is canceled as soon as there is repentance. And we do this because this is how God has forgiven us. And so in, in addressing sin in the home, we have to let God's word define sin. We have to acknowledge that we are the foremost sinner we can see in the home. We have to seek forgiveness and extend forgiveness. And in all this, what we're seeking to convey is that even as a man is to rule in the home, he's ultimately ruling in the home because God is the one who rules over that home. It is about loving the Lord our God, not the man getting his way. And so what that helps us here 
when we are considering the dynamic of pursuing purity in the home, we have to understand that if it is about loving the Lord our God, that that means love should permeate every moment of the family's life. So the tone and tenor of the family should be one of love, not of constant rebuke. There should be affection that seasons every moment of that family's existence so that when there is a time to rebuke, which there will be, it is done out of an overflow of that love and affection for God and for those in the household. That's the dynamic laid out in Galatians 6, that you restore those who are in sin in a spirit of gentleness. The spirit of the home should be one of love and affection and gentleness. So if I could try to balance this out, what I am saying is that if the tenor of the home is not loving, then you're not being biblical. But if sin is never addressed in the home, then you're not really loving those under your care. If the tone and tenor of the home is not love and affection, it's not biblical. And if you never address sin in the home, you're not actually loving those under your care. If we will not address the sin in our family and lead those under our care to God, you're abandoning them to our sin, to, to their sin. You're abandoning them to their sin in our sin, and we're leaving them in the clutches of Satan for destruction. And what I'm saying here, I'm not it is not sufficient even to say, well, I will, as a man, bring my family to a good church where there's good elders, do a good job teaching, and that will be sufficient. Even with that, what will come across to the family is that you don't want to actually personally engage them. And that reflects on how much you actually love the Lord your God. That is going to convey spiritual laxity, spiritual laziness, and it will have a profound impact on the family. We cannot avoid having a profound impact on our family as men, whether in activity or in abdication. What we have to understand further is that our wives and our children are designed to follow, and follow they will. This is the dynamic that I think is laid out in 1 Timothy 2 by Paul when he's commenting on what happened in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, Satan goes into the garden, and God had made an order. God was ruling over all as the creator. Man was his image bearer, with woman as his helper as a complementary image bearer, but she was under his leadership. And what does Satan do? He takes this order and flips upside down in his pursuit of dishonoring God, and he takes the one who's designed to be a helper, designed to be a follower, and goes after her, because she will follow. And the problem is, what does Adam do in the midst of that? He's there. He's just passive. Soft masculinity is the reason death exists in the world. Adam's there. He's seeing it happen, and he is not being active. And the result is the fall. There's curse on the ground because of it. There might be women who want to rule over their husband. Her desire might be contrary to her husband, but he must rule over you. And what that means is, a woman who seeks to supplant her husband as a leader in the home, even subtly, she will not be happy. She will not be healthy. There was uh, someone here telling me about this dynamic where um, 
there's this growing trend of, of feminists who had committed their lives to their career and their, their, their pursuits, thinking, I don't need a man, I don't need a family, who are now older, without the things they didn't want, and very much regretting their commitment to fleeing God's ways. They wish they had not done it that way. Now, I don't know that they're necessarily repentant, but they see that what they've committed themselves to is destroying them to some degree. And this, this informs us. When someone sins against us, we were talking about this before the, the service time this morning, it's so easy. When someone sins against us, sins against us, it's so easy to think, well, they got me, I'm going to get them right back. The Christian response to being sinned against is to have an immediate compassion for the one who's in sin. Because that sin is destroying them. We are not to return evil for evil. We are to have a compassion even if someone sins against us. Because their sin against us, that does nothing to us eternally. But if they stay in their sin, they stay in that sin and they won't repent, they will come under judgment. It's, it's, it's been one of those things, I, I keep a prayer journal, and I mean, there's no point in which I open that prayer journal to pray for, for the things going on in my life and to pray for their, my brothers and sisters here. There's never a moment where I open that prayer journal, I'm like, my prayers will be sufficient for our needs. That, that point never has existed, but boy, right now, with all the things that our church is going through, do I look at that prayer journal, I'm like, wow, I need to pray, and I, we, need, we all need to pray. And what I want to point out, with all the needs that we having have going on right now, the danger can be to think that we have to have all of our, our needs met. That's the biggest danger that faces us, is to get these things taken care of. Our greatest danger remains, even in the midst of things that are truly tragic right now, in the midst of a lot of desperate situations going on uh, in our body, our greatest danger remains sin. And, and the, the real grace is those trials, those are so often intended by God to refine us, to remove that sin, and help us to enjoy God more, to bring us nearer to God and make us more like God. And so that prayer list that's insurmountable, we can, we can give thanks for those difficulties. And so we need to see trials in that vein of being thankful for them, knowing how God works all things together for our good, and to consider trials as a joy in James 1 terms. We have to put rebuke in the addressing of our sin in that same category, no matter how much we don't want to. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. False prophets sound really nice. They're not really nice. Did you catch it from Psalm 141? You've read it twice. I'm going to read it again. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. We start in the gospel by being rebuked. Jesus' gospel proclamation in the gospels is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It starts with a rebuke. If we are Christians and we have started in our faith by accepting rebuke, we had best continue to accept rebuke, knowing that that is the kindness of the Lord that's intended to lead us in repentance. And we have to understand that such love manifested in 
calling us to repentance is a grace that we have to extend to our children. The question is, what is the standard for obedience for children? Oftentimes, the standard that we get, even in Christian circles, is kids will be kids. That's the standard. I would ask you, is that God's standard? Is that the Bible standard? I mean, we just read Deuteronomy 13, 6 through 8, talking about your son or your daughter. That is not God's standard. Children are image bearers. That is why they're of infinite value. Image bearers are made to love the Lord their God. Children are made to love their neighbor as their self. They are made to obey the word of God. And one of the fearful things is that we have to understand they will in one of two ways. They will either glorify God in salvation or they will glorify God in judgment. Our job as parents is to show them that when they disobey, when they're disrespectful, when they're disobedient, when they betray God's standard, our job is to point that out to them, not so that they can make our lives more enjoyable, but so that they can be shown that in their sin they deserve hell, but God sent Jesus to save sinners just like them. There's life and blessing to be found there, but not in their sin. Oftentimes, um, even in in American churches especially, moms have a tendency to to soften that standard. And just like we talked about with Adam, dads oftentimes kind of just sit back while that happens. And what we have to be careful with is that if we soften God's standard for children, what that's going to cultivate in them is greater and greater depravity. Paul talks about this in Romans 1, 2 Timothy 3. Disobedience to parents is a hallmark of fallen humanity that stores up wrath for the day of judgment. We do not want that for our children. No, we correct them when they betray the word of God and instruct them that the answer is not for them to just try harder. The answer is not for them to make my life more pleasant. The answer is Jesus Christ. The answer is the gospel. And the answer is the gospel because they're not... like. I see all the goofiness that my sons reflect that is from me and the sin they reflect that's from me. But even with all of that, they are God's image bearers first and foremost, not mine. And so I instruct them towards God. We have to instruct our children towards God because they are his image bearers, not ours ultimately. So this is where um, we need to be careful, and moms especially, we need to be careful to not protect our children from any sort of danger. We, we want our children to become strong. And especially for boys, they need to be tough and strong. And if we are overprotective, what's that, what that is going to cultivate is not just weakness. It's going to cultivate an understanding that boo-boos are more significant than sins. And what that's going to do is pour gasoline on the fire of idolatry and sin. There's consequences to this. We see this in individuals' lives. We see this in families' lives. We see this in the church. We see this all over our culture. Deuteronomy 13, 6 through 8 is calling men. It's talking about men and the wife you embrace even. This is, this is a masculine passage. Men must protect their households from sin both in that household and from outside that household. This means we have to consider whether we're going to have internet in the house, what we're going to do with that internet in the house. What sorts of friends are our wives and children spending time with? Are they friends that they should be spending time with? We have to lead our wives and love them in a way that 
beckons them towards their God and Savior. And then with our wives, we have to lead our children to put their faith in Christ, not in their sin. Because we have to make it clear to them that the household is not about them, nor is it about us. It is about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And that we will leave no room for idolatry in the midst of our house. Because we will order our house the way that our Savior has called us to. Consider Israel's calling here. I know what I've said is hard. Consider the calling. Verse 9. But this is what they're supposed to do. They're not supposed to yield or listen or pity or spare or conceal. Verse 9. But you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. Why capital punishment? Why, why death? Why is this fitting? And it's because idolatry leads to death. You see this in the, the literal sense of they will send sons and daughters to the fire in the pursuit of their idolatry. The fullness of that sin leads to the Canaanites being wiped out. And if Israel will not deal with that evil in their midst, it will spread as we've been talking about. It's interesting that, but you shall kill him. That's That word for kill is used twice in the Hebrew to emphasize. Why is it? It says, your hand shall be first against him to put him to death. Why would you have to be first as a family member? To make it clear to the community that God comes before anyone. We worship the Lord our God first. This also ensures justice. If you don't like this person, you can't make an accusation and then run away. You either have to fill up your lie or you have to fill up your obedience. It ensures justice. And so what what we're seeing here, um, I think this informs how we understand true love. Love is first and foremost to God. Love means that we will deal with sin. Oftentimes the dynamic of 1 Corinthians 13, where love believes all things, is misconstrued as to mean we can sweep sin under the rug. But love rejoices in the truth. And so the way that verse 9 is structured here, you shall be first against him to put him to death, showing that you love the Lord your God. You will not commit idolatry, and you will follow him regardless of the cost. And afterward, the hand of all the people. All the people are to be instructed through this. It says, you shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, why why is it that the punishment is specifically to stone them? And this is, please feel free to not agree with me on what I'm about to propose. I have some ideas. Um, We've been talking about how Deuteronomy is structured around the ten words. Well, the ten words were written on what? Stones. Israel was to look at the stones and to see that they were to reflect God's glory. They were not supposed to look at the stones and think, I should make gods out of stones. To do this abomination of worshiping the creature or a a piece of creation, a lifeless piece of creation even, like the stone, 
that is a pursuit of idolatry that is just like what we talked about from the garden. That is following the serpent. And so what this passage is laying out, what this verse is laying out, is that if you're going to go the way of the serpent and not worship the Lord your God, you're going to end up like the serpent. Namely, you're going to be crushed. You want to worship a lifeless pile of stones in your idolatry? You'll become a lifeless pile of stones. Talked about how trials are grace of God, even in, even as they are difficult. And oftentimes the, the opposite of that is true. Getting what you want is not necessarily a gift from God. I think the stoning is an ironic giving you what you wanted. And so we have to be careful. You see this? The reason the person is being stoned is because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. They're trying to act like this is better worship. God didn't really say, this isn't really sin. And what, what that all is doing is drawing them away from the God who has shown them grace and redeemed them. False teachers wear that sheep's clothing, like we talked about. They seem very nice. But they are inwardly ravenous wolves, precisely because, as nice as the false teaching sounds, it is drawing you away from real grace. We are not to worship idols. We are not to worship things made out of stone. No, we, we worship the living God who sent his son to be the stone that the builders rejected, who has become the chief cornerstone. And through his death on the cross and resurrection, it's making us living stones built into the very house of God, being filled with his glory, conformed to the image of Christ by the spirit who is in us. And it's not just something that we are experiencing by God's grace as individuals. It's something we're experiencing together. Look at verse 11. And all Israel shall hear in fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. We'll see this as we go into Deuteronomy 16. They're supposed to have these judges set up in their towns that would conduct these cases and ensure that there's a just due process in these cases. We'll talk about that as we go into the end of chapter 13, the importance of proper examination of evidence that is implicit here in this passage of verses 6 through 11. And so what those judges were supposed to do in ensuring that justice, they were supposed to execute justice as it was needed in these cases as a means of warning the people about the heinousness of idolatry. And what, we're gonna, what, what you'll see as you go forward in redemptive history is that those judges in Israel, instead of warning the people about their idolatry, oftentimes led the people in their idolatry. Led them into sin, and ultimately into exile. You see this with most of the kings as you go into First and Second Kings. Most of those kings, they did not destroy the idols. And when Jesus comes as the true image of God, the only true worshiper of God, all of a sudden that's the image they want to destroy. This is our propensity. We would be the same. We, we've sung the words here before, I'm almost certain. It was my sin that held him there. That's, that's our fault. We would have been in that same spot. We are all idolaters. And yet Christ was hung on the tree 
He was cursed that we might receive blessing. He became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We deserved this capital punishment, and he took it for us. And so the very least we can do is to pursue pursue purity, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, and to lead our families in that pursuit. And as this is laying out, all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. It is supposed to permeate our lives and our family. It's supposed to permeate our church family as well. So to illustrate how that would work, if we consider a situation where, let's say, one spouse is in sin and the other spouse calls them to repent, if that spouse who's in sin does not repent, the, the spouse that is trying to call them to repent should, at that point, reach out to the elders and bring along two or three witnesses to come in and help. But here's where we have to be careful. Sin is defined by God's word. So when those witnesses come in, what they're examining is not who has the most compelling story. It is, what does God say? What is the truth and the evidence of the situation? We're going to talk about that more as we go through Deuteronomy. Because those case laws that are going to be laid out in Deuteronomy are used in Matthew 18. So how church discipline is executed is according to God's word and then the examination of evidence. And what's helpful to note as well is that even if that person is truly in sin and the elders call them to repent, they don't listen. And then it's brought before the church. And the church calls them to repent. And that person won't repent. We are to indeed treat them as an unbeliever. We saw this in 1 Corinthians 5. We are not to associate with them. And yet, as we hand them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, it's with the hope that that is the very means by which they'll be restored. Oftentimes, people church or scoff at church discipline because it sounds harsh. That is the last-ditch grace for them to be brought out of sin and brought near to God. That is why church discipline is to be done. It's in the hope that it will instill this sort of fear of God that is necessary as this person is drifting away from God. This is why, and I will reiterate from last week, and it just needs to be a continuous part of how we consider life together. This is why church membership is so pivotal. It allows us to, to formalize who is to give and receive protection from one another, who the elders are to be specifically looking over. That's why it is important to join the church and to formalize and facilitate the most effective means of protecting one another. Because sin is so dangerous. So how do we cultivate the sort of community that is centered around the fear of God? Well, it starts with an intimacy of relationship. And one of the primary means by which we can achieve this, and it is a command in the New Testament. You can look at 1 Peter 4. And it's an often ne- neglected command. We can facilitate that sort of fellowship by hospitality, by sharing life with one another. And this is where what we were talking about in the family is so pivotal. A man needs to love his wife well, to lead her well, to create a warm and welcoming covenant relationship with her so that through that warmth in their marriage, they can open up a house that is warm and welcoming as well. That's where it starts. We, we have different people in different situations that 
might not necessarily be able to facilitate hospitality in the same way. And so I know in our culture it's kind of taboo, but I think we need to just throw it out, to be frank. If you are in need of fellowship, you need prayer and encouragement, just ask to come over. And I mean that for my house as much as anyone's. We need to be able to just ask one another to let us come over and to fellowship and to pray with us and talk with us as needed. So can we just as a body commit to not being offended if someone asks to come over? I don't think we would be. I think we're a very loving, welcoming church. But I want to just say it right out here in front. If you want to ask to come over, I'm not going to be offended. I might not be able to do it in that second. I'd change diapers right now. So, I mean, it might take a couple minutes, but I'm not going to be offended. Let's commit to not being offended. This needs to happen if we're going to cultivate this sort of intimacy and love and support for one another in the church. So we have to cultivate a warm, loving, welcoming home, open that home up, and as we have fellowship within the home, actually be honest with one another. We have to share with where we're struggling. And that has to be okay. We need help. Let's be really careful. And I think this is all too common in our culture. And I'm not saying like I'm this, I'm not saying any of this like I'm exempt from any of it. We have a, a propensity to pursue our privacy over and against our purity. That leads to destruction. We have to be concerned with purity. We have to know that God works purity in us by the Spirit in Christ through the body. So, are we seeking to be as near to one another in this church as we can be? And I think we do a, a pretty good job of this, but we have to abound all the more. The Thessalonians were doing a good job, and Paul still tells them to abound all the more. We must abound all the more. We've talked about how dark these days are. We have to abound all the more. We've talked about the dynamic of We've talked about the dynamic of the family and the church, and, and these principles, I think, also address what to do with our extended family. And, and how we address extended family is just difficult. I, I don't know that I could necessarily say this for a fact, but I feel like, personally at least, ministry to your extended family is probably the hardest sort of Christian ministry that we have in existence. And I might be wrong on that. You can tell me I'm wrong later. I'll be glad to concede. But it feels like it to me, at least. Ministry to examine family is really hard. And so I do think we get a lot of good instruction from considering what is being laid out here and how this is used in the New Testament. So the first place I want to start with considering how we relate to extended family is to look at Matthew 10. Matthew 10 says in verse 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That passage sure sounds like what we're reading, doesn't it? And what Jesus is laying out is the same sort of thing we're seeing here. Our pursuit of loving the Lord our God, of picking up our cross and following Christ, means that we might very, very well lose members of our family. I'm just going to put it on the table. These are the words of our Lord and Savior. So how do we navigate? Because 
the, the presumption in Matthew 10 is that you're so clear in your testimony of the gospel that your family is going to want to be enemy with you. So we have to start there. We have to be clear about what the gospel says. And how we apply the gospel is going to depend on the circumstance of the person in our extended family. If the person in our extended family is an unbeliever and they just say, I'm an unbeliever, but they're willing to actually spend time with us, like we were seeing in 1 Corinthians 5, we can associate with them in a way that ministers the gospel to them, even while we refuse to join in that which might be sinful or idolatrous. So there's, there's our guardrails. Fellowship with them. Minister the gospel to them. But you do not join them in worshiping what they worship. So when we look at, perhaps we have members of our family that are believers, but have different theological convictions with us, I think it's good to fellowship with them. It's good to pray with them. It's good to talk with them and to speak about the word with them and to be patient as we do so. We don't have to iron everyone out into being like us, and we definitely don't have to do that immediately. But we can minister the word to them and hear where they're coming from as well and to give thanks for the fact that we can have those sorts of relationships, even with family members who are Christians that we don't necessarily agree with. There are also circumstances where members of our family say that they are Christians but live in a life, live a life that is contrary to the gospel. They live in open, unrepentant sin. And I think what we need to do in those circumstances is to work out the ministry of reconciliation that we have been tasked with from 2 Corinthians 5. We need to do what James 5 says and call them to repent, that we might save their soul from a multitude of sins, and if they won't, we start with, does your church know that you are living this life of open rebellion against God? And if they don't, we should tell that church so that church can do what they're called to do by God. Sometimes churches know and don't care. And in those situations, I would encourage you to talk to your pastors, talk to your elders, get their counsel about what to do. But... If, indeed, their church has abdicated their responsibility to do church discipline, I think the best thing to do, based off of what we read from 1 Corinthians 5 and what we see from 2 John, is to not associate with them. If they're living as an unbeliever, to treat them as an unbeliever. And this is a different category because they're saying they're a Christian, but they're betraying that witness by their unrepentant sin. This is different. This is why we would not associate with them. They are dishonest about what they claim to be, whereas the unbeliever who says they're an unbeliever is very honest about what they are. And therefore, they are not bringing shame upon the name of Christ in that same way that a hypocrite would. And I know what I'm saying is a big thing. It is a intimidating prospect, but I do think it's biblical. And to return to what we were talking about before, the reason why I think it's actually a grace to your extended family in this circumstance is because it conveys how fearful you are for them and how much they need to fear God, given how they are living in unrepentant sin. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. The person in our family who's living in unrepentant sin needs to dread that path that they are on, to dread the fact that they are sinning against the holy God and refusing to heed his word and repent. And that's the very means by which they can see the goodness of God. 
Because God not only judges unrepentant sinners, God has sent his son, who was initially rejected by members of his family, who in his darkest moment is abandoned by his disciples, who's ultimately rejected by his people and hung on a cross. He knows all the difficulties in a personal way. But he was sent by the Father to accomplish a gospel that will bring salvation to our extended family, even as we do something so drastic. We need to speak the truth in love, even as it hurts for the glory of God, because this is for the good of others. If we do not, there will be blood on our hands and we will have to give an account. And we can find motivation to do this because we know it is through Christ's shed blood that he has spoken the truth and love to us. So we know that that gospel is powerful to save, that even if we do suffer loss in this meantime, Christ restores manifold anything we lose. And so our hope is in him, not in this world. And we know that he is winning and that he will win. But we need to fear the Lord. And let's pray that God would do that work in us.